All right, welcome back, folks. We have John Clark on the line with us, Clark Energy Consulting. I wanted to dive into this Texas Railroad Commission a little bit more, and I know not only is Mr. Clark in the energy sector, he's knowledgeable, but I believe he's also out of, aren't you out of Texas too? That's right, Jason, here in Houston, the energy capital of the world. That's what I thought. So, okay, because sometimes, I'll be honest, uh, my mental Rolodex isn't what it used to be, you know? It's still okay, but it's more of a, I don't know, it's not quite a three-hole punch anymore. Uh, so anyway, but well, that's a different discussion for a different day, and that's why I rely on experts, and you are one of the experts that has dived in and taken a look at not only the Texas Railroad Commission, but my understanding is you've even talk to some people, and even done a little bit extra research on a, uh, a few topics and a few different things. So let's talk a little bit about yesterday's Railroad Commission meeting that happened, the unprecedented Railroad Commission meeting. Now, you are, um, you've got some lineage about oil and gas, but I wanted just to start off and set the table a little bit about the power and the importance behind really what yesterday was, because we had James Coleman on yesterday, as well as Bruce Bullock with uh, Southern Methodist University, uh, the School of uh, Law and also the School of Business. And they both kind of mentioned really that, uh, you know, the, the, the Texas Railroad Commission is kind of considered OPEC in terms of the, the, the power behind it, that when the Railroad Commission makes a move, it is felt across the globe. And we talked about that a little bit and. I didn't know how aware you were of that or if you looked into that a little bit, but I, I just wanted to let you comment on that a little bit from your perspective. You know, like I said, you, you have a history in it, but you're, you know, you're younger than me. So I, I, I had to at least bring that up, John. Sure, Jason. Yeah, so I've, I'm born and raised in Houston. I've lived here for 30 years and uh, I've never seen anything like this. I, you know, I've studied the history of oil and uh, certainly, you know, the impact of the Railroad Commission, you're right, it was the former OPEC before OPEC was established in the 70s. So the Railroad Commission is, is, was really founded on the basis uh, to produce oil and gas and energy efficiently. And in the past, it was the Railroad Commission actually would uh, curtail or prorate production to move prices. And so, and and basically, the uh, the statute that the commission has is to prohibit waste. And so, w yesterday we had a unprecedented meeting with the road commission. The three commissioners had an open meeting, and there were fifty eight different testimonies from people across the board: large, small producers, uh, think tanks, investors, uh, even university professors. All commented on what they thought and it's 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 interesting because this discussion has not come up since the 70s and pr really the 50s and then the 30s and so it's been 50 years since the railroad commission has even thought of or talked about this and so you know the the question is you know does supply and demand um is is there excess waste as a result of supply uh, surplus or demand shock and many argue that, yes, there is waste, but at the heart of it, and I went to the Railroad Commission's website, and I'm, uh, the OG brief that I'm going to publish today will have links to a lot of the documents, speakers, comments, and so uh, definitely check it out. I've kind of spent the last 24 hours synthesizing and capturing 
a lot of what people had to say. And I came away listening to that meeting with some interesting uh, enlightenment insights and um, actually more questions than answers. Uh, and so it's uh, I'll kind of talk to some of that. Um, you know, my background as a petroleum engineer, second generation petroleum engineer, uh, it's, you know, Texas being a economic powerhouse, oil and gas production. You know, there's a lot of other states in America that are watching what the Railroad Commission does and even across the world. And so it was uh, certainly um, historic time to, to listen in. One of the things I took away from yesterday's meeting in terms of talking with the different gentlemen was the environmental angle, how just the sheer reduction of, of production could really appease some of the environmentalists out there to where it actually, you know, I mean, the conversation is this is this would be a good step in the right direction to stop the protesting and, and allow this stuff to move forward. I didn't know if you saw that or heard that or, or got into that part of it, but uh, just what's your thoughts on that environmental angle in terms of, you know, really having a honest look at it? Yeah, what, what I've heard was, you know, there's so many different viewpoints, agendas and motivations behind each testimony, and it's very evident given the diverse uh, nature from each speaker. So what I what I heard was there were some people that had their own position or agenda to say, well, you know, like the small producers, for example, they may not even be able to sell their oil to midstream or refineries because they're on a spot contract. The same is true of flaring. You know, for a lot of the small companies that are forced to flare, it's because they don't have the pipelines in place. And so there's economic waste by, uh, you know, not being able to have the infrastructure or the scale to, to build out and pipe the gas. And so it's actually a cost burden to the smaller operators. Now, there's a lot of larger operators that have the infrastructure and they can reduce their flaring. And so one side of the coin is, okay, may, you know, some people suggested we uh, curtail production by reducing emissions. Well, that may end up benefiting the larger companies and still hurting the smaller companies. Uh, what I really took away was a lot of the large companies that still have access to debt and have scale are, and have long-term contracts are at an advantage here. And the small producers are at a significant disadvantage in the takeaway capacity and the question of flaring. So you get these testimonies that mix policy with, uh, you know, supply and demand fundamentals. And, and there's plenty of people that have, you know, inserted their own political agendas in their testimonies. You know, what you have to do when you when you listen through and you can go back and I'll post the link to the archive. Uh, you can, you, you know, actually uh, discern what the company's you know agenda may be and try to understand you know where they're coming from you also have more of the neutral people like the professors and and think tanks that you know some of them like the api american petroleum institute uh, they were neutral they didn't really say one or the other they had a chief economist that spoke to some of the numbers on demand and how that's you know obviously impacted from the coronavirus lockdowns as well as you know, the supply situation, uh, you know, the, the question is, sh should the Railroad Commission do anything at all? And if so, what and how? Because they, you know, you got to think about this, Jason. The Railroad Commission hasn't enacted anything like this in 50 years. And the way they did it in the past was by 
taking all of the production as a total pie and each well divided up as their piece of the pie. And back in the 50s, they said, you know, you can only produce, uh, you know, up to, I think it was like 600 barrels per month or like eight barrels uh, per day. And so, or, or eight days of the month. I don't even remember what <laughs> what it is. It, it's been so long ago that there's, you know, the, the way that the, the Railroad Commission can look at how to tackle this problem, they even have questions. Like the commissioners were saying, you know, how do we even do this? You know, you could either say, let's uh, let's have equal pain across the board. So every company should reduce by a certain percentage. Uh, well, that, that may work and um, be, be well, but it's, you know, there's also questions on, well, what if I, you know, what if I want to cut more? You know, what, what can I do? Can I trade my uh, allowance of, of production cuts to another company? And that's something that uh, professors at Rice University were, was talking about. Uh, there's so many different ways to look at the problem. But at the end of the day, the number of 10% cut was thrown out there, which would be about a million barrels per day. What is a million barrels per day going to do in this market when OPEC announced a 10 million barrel per day cut, but many analysts estimate 20 to 30 million barrels per day of demand reduction? It's not gonna. It's not gonna be a drop in the bucket, Jason. But others say, well, if the Railroad Commission be, can be the leader in this, you know, other states like Oklahoma and North Dakota may follow. Uh, but again, in the U.S., we produce. 13 million barrels per day, you know, plus the 10 that OPEC announced cuts for would still be a shortfall to uh, remedy the markets because of the demand shock. So, you know, the, the other side of the coin is why should we disadvantage Texas producers by forcing them to cut, even though there may be waste? Okay, people recognize that there may be waste, but is that going to really change the price of oil? And many suggest it won't. So by cutting, we saw OPEC cut, you know, announced their cuts, and oil prices dropped to $21, I think, yesterday. So we're not seeing the market appreciate any of the cuts right now. So cutting and falling prices will only disadvantage Texas producers, in my opinion. But it's it's great to hear the discussion on this and the different topics. And certainly I walked away learning, you know, a lot more about the different considerations, you know, others talk about, do we fully shut in wells or just curtail production? What is the impact does that have on, on damaging the reservoir? A lot of these wells that are fully shut in or uh, they may not come back to their full production. And so what impact would that have on the producer? There's so, it's a very complex situation, of course. And even many of the commissioners are struggling to understand how to actually tackle the problem. I don't know if there's even the resources, personnel, to do that in a fair way. So the best option may be to do nothing. Lisa's, how about the silver lining or is it going to impact and hurt? Um, Lisa's are really, you know, at the end of the day, the people. And a lot of the people that listen to this program own mineral leases. And they like to know, okay, is my mineral lease going to go up in value? Is it going to get nationalized? What the heck is going on here? So um, was anybody talking about leases at this thing yesterday in terms of what kind of impact that's going to have on, on, you know, the average mineral leaseholder? Yeah, so we listened to 
um, some of the industry uh, industry groups on uh, the mineral side, and many of the minerals uh, companies were against. I'm sorry, they were for proration because, in their view, they don't want to sell oil, their oil and their minerals. Which, when you own the minerals, you own it, for, you know, for the life of the well or the reservoir, and you know, you want to protect that. So uh, depletion is a huge factor, but also, uh, you know, you want to sell that for a better price, you know, and many minerals owners said, you know, if, if we would be happy to cut our production, if we can get a better price, the thing is, I don't think that's going to happen. And that's really where the question of economic waste has to uh, recognize that any curtailment you know, will the curtailment raise prices? And I think the answer is no. And so, um, you know, the I don't know if it'll happen, but it's certainly I, I appreciated the commission's willingness to hear all the testimonies, uh, the minerals companies and the large independents. Their position was typically, you know, like Pioneer, um, Continental Resources. You know, they were saying let's curtail, but I think they have hidden agendas that, uh, you know kind of mask what uh what's really happening you have the large producers the majors that also have downstream refineries that are benefiting from low price and they have the scale and access to capitals and so you know their agenda is well let's squeeze all the small producers and maybe we can buy their assets when they go bankrupt as you know that's how capital free markets work and so you know the question of free markets was raised you know are we in a free market um and so it (laughs) That's that's the part where uh, you know I came away with. Go ahead. What was the? What did they say on that? Sorry to interrupt you, but um, I'm I'm very curious because I've said for a few t- for for a while now that I I truly believe the oil and gas industry is the last bastion for a capitalistic somewhat of a free market society. Now it's not totally free in my opinion. There is subsidies involved, and there are politicians that funnel and centralize uh, business on behalf of some of the big majors. But uh, what was said on that, by the way? Sorry to interrupt. <laughs> yeah, no, the, the Rice University professor, uh, Ken uh, Medlock, answered that one best, that, um, you know, as far as free markets, yes, we are in a free market. And, you know, the, the price of oil is truly supply and demand. And so um, I'm a believer in free markets. And I also think that, you know, what the comments were on free markets are the the only way that our industry has been able to unlock shale resources is through innovation and efficiency. And, you know, a lot of times if, you know, our industry has had to evolve because of price challenges and as as hard as it may be, especially for the little guys, it's ultimately made a better industry. And so that's the way I see it. And I and I think many uh, of the industry think tanks are also in the same boat. And those are the same people that are against proration because at the end of the day, you know, we will have a better industry that will be more efficient and and be able to survive for the long term. I think. You know, if uh, we if we say that we're not in a free market, we need government intervention. That only opens the door for um, you know the potential loss of social license to operate in the future. 
This is a really interesting time that we're at right now because the Los Angeles, I'm sorry, the Las Vegas, is it the Golden Knights? No, that's the hockey team. What's the name of their football team? The Las Vegas Raiders because they moved from Oakland. Okay, now I'm actually processing this as we're, this is real-time processing, John Clark. here, <laughs> Right here on The Crude Life, I'm processing this info real-time. Uh, they, their executives came out because construction is still going on at their stadium. And they flat out said, the only thing that'll make us not reach our deadline is the government. And that's kind of how I feel about the oil and gas industry right now. And, and, and because they can have as free market as they want, to be honest. And the only restrictions that they're really having is, is the government. You know, you take a look at a lot of the different Colorado, you take a look at New York, you take a look at California, this is my way to transition into what kind of regulatory discussions I guess were had that you saw in the Texas Railroad Commission because I did ask uh, James Coleman about it and I did ask Bruce Bullock about it as well. Um, to me, when I started hearing about you know the free market and regulations and pulling back production, I thought, boy, what I know about Texas and the bravado involved with Texas, I'm not sure about how being compared to California, Colorado, or New York would be received. But I understand it It needed to be talked about. So was that brought up at all, you know, the, the amount of regulation, comparing it with other states? And, and, and I think you understand the question. I'm, I'm you know, it's, it's, it's a bit long and winded, but it, it needed to have some context. Right. I mean, as, as far as regulation, there were suggestions to kill two birds with one stone by uh, – forcing the operators that have greater than two or three percent emissions to shut in their wells or curtail their production. And so, I mean, that that's a political agenda. I, I think that's where you have to be careful because you don't, and this, you know, the mandate from the Railroad Commission is not uh, to change policy, but it does bring good questions that I think need to be further, uh, you know, dived into because we do need to address the emissions problem. Even though we've grown production while reducing emissions, we still are a large emitter. And I think that's something as far as social license to operate, we have to continue to work on. I just don't think it's going to come at the hands of the Railroad Commission, uh, you know, and, and it, but it is coming and many recognize that. And so whether that's from the federal or state level, you know, it's currently at the state level. Uh, there have been talks of federal mandates for emissions. So I think that would not be something wildly crazy to see in the next few years. Uh, but at the moment, the, the state manages that. And, uh, you know, uh, I think the position that the Railroad Commission in Texas has is that, you know, we, uh, we need to manage it. You know, I think at this point it's still voluntary, but uh, there's been more talk of, you know, regulation on emissions and uh, even managing water, you know, recycling water. And I think there's certainly opportunities to do that. And the, the the reason why is because if we can show, continue to show the public and the states like California, New York, Colorado, et cetera, that we can, you know, economically grow production, reduce our f carbon footprint, you know, we will continue to have social license to operate. And at these prices, you can't get any more energy dense fuel source at such a low price. Overall thoughts. What'd you think of the meeting yesterday? What you consumed people you've talked to 
kind of some of the the connecting the dots, if you will, just kind of give us your overall synopsis. Yeah, it was it was great to hear from you know the various uh, testimonies and uh, you know what I took away was that there's just so many different scenarios and you know ultimately this was you know great to to hear but it felt like I was sitting in a courtroom all day and this was just the beginning of it. If proration were to occur, uh, there may be a longer time in litigation than we are in this downturn. So. Uh, I personally, you know, my personal view is that I don't think any regulation will help here, uh, but certainly happy to hear, you know, from uh, the testimonies of the smaller producers and, and just how, you know, the upstream industry impacts the total value chain, you know, midstream and downstream. I learned a little bit about, you know, the contracts and, and how uh, the short-term contracts are being canceled or force majeure. Uh, the longer-term contracts are you know, with the major companies. So starting, I, I really learned more about, you know, the different agendas that people have, uh, but which really speaks to the fact that, you know, we've been able to, uh, the state of Texas and, the, you know, the U.S., North Dakota, Oklahoma, um, Colorado, and other places have, have continued to be able to provide affordable energy uh, efficiently. And it's going to be challenging uh, looking forward, but, you know, uh, you know, short-term pain will yield long-term gain, 